Religio Politics is produced by the International Policy Institute at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, which is made possible in part by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The statements made and views expressed are solely the responsibility of the author. Welcome to Religio Politics, the podcast on religion and geopolitics. I'm Randy Thompson, postdoc in religious literacy across cultures here at the Jackson School. Thanks for listening to this first episode, which is on the campaign by the president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, for a Ukrainian Orthodox church, free from control of the Moscow Patriarchate. This formed a major plank in his nationalist campaign for re-election. However, in April of 2019, Poroshenko met with defeat at the polls, receiving only 27% of the votes cast in the decisive second round. Further, he lost to an actor who had impersonated him as the president on a Ukrainian comedy show called Servant of the People. This comedian, Volodymyr Zelensky, dissolved parliament as his first act in office and then won 60% of the seats in the elections that followed. I chose this story of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church for the first episode of the podcast because it illustrates two things. First, the influence between religion and politics always goes both ways, changing both in ways that neither side expected. Second, it shows that religio-political projects are no sure bet. Poroshenko's National Orthodox Church received Atomos, the document of autocephaly or self-rule, but he lost three to one to an opponent who ran against him as someone dividing the Ukrainian people for political gain, making it appear that his religious nationalism may have backfired. With us to help explain all this is Dr. Gene Lemcho, Professor Emeritus at Seattle Pacific University and currently affiliated with the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Washington, as well as advisor to the Honorary Consulate of Ukraine here in Seattle. Dr. Lemcho, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Can you explain what the situation is in Ukraine? where you have a uh, political and a religious actor working together to establish a Orthodox church in Ukraine that's independent from any other authority. In 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart, there was an attempt in Ukraine to gain independence from Moscow Patriarchate, the Moscow uh, governing center. Presidents supported this move. They verbally advocated it, but no one did anything about it, really, until the immediate past president, Poroshenko, who made efforts, both as president, to go to Constantinople to make the case to the patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew II, that Ukraine should have its own church. And that would be achieved by what's called a Thomas, which in Greek means declaration, that the patriarch of Constantinople, being the greatest among equals in the Orthodox world, would give his blessing on this document and independence that followed. He did, to make a long story short. And with the granting of this Thomas on January the 2nd, which is the Ukrainian Orthodox Christmas Eve, then the president and the newly elected head of the independent Ukrainian church went throughout Ukraine with a document 
making the point that finally, with this document, Ukraine's security and independence politically and religiously has been achieved. Independence is essentially religio-political. It's both. They made that very clear, and that it was a matter of state security, that only with its own church could be free of both the political and religious influence of Russia. For Poroshenko, how important was this in his overall governing philosophy and his accomplishments as president? It was probably the most important alongside the establishment of Ukrainian, because with the new so-called new church, all the services have to be in Ukrainian as the national language, which included specifics about how much percentage should be done over the media in Ukrainian and so on. Instead of what? Instead of Russian. Alongside of Russian, but dominant over Russian. What did they settle on? 75%. Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Nationwide. Well, particularly in the media and in all government publications. Well, everything in the government had to be in Ukrainian, but throughout all other public vehicles, it had to be 75%. So Poroshenko's two main accomplishments were ethno-linguistic and then this religio-political tomos, which would give Ukraine independence religiously, and in his mind also politically and really militarily, I guess is what he's saying, it's a security concern from Russia. So all of these things are part of a broader nationalism that Poroshenko was running on. Yes, and his slogan was army, language, and faith. So tied to this was really opposing Russia and at least bringing it to a standstill. So he formed the army under his watch. He also um, instituted a 30-day state of emergency when the ships of Ukrainians' fledgling navy were commandeered by Russians on the Sea of Azov. So you have really a mosaic of all these pieces. And many people said cynically, all this was being done with an eye toward the upcoming elections. So to get all of this wrapped up before that date was his agenda. Not all of the Orthodox in Ukraine are part of this new national Ukrainian Orthodox Church. That's right. In fact, it is a combination of the two smaller branches of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. I think we should understand briefly what it looked like in Ukraine prior. So from what I understand, there was three branches of Orthodoxy. There was two that were seeking independence, although not working together in all ways, and that they have actually ended up joining together under this new law, this this Tomos, but that a large percentage of the population never joined this new Orthodox Church. That's right. We're talking about 12,000 parishes with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate, about 6,000 Ukrainian Orthodox Church Kiev Patriarchate, and about 3,000 of the Ukrainian Autocephalus Orthodox Church. So altogether, the new church has about 9,000 parishes, but the Orthodox Church affiliated with Moscow has 12,000 still. That's right. And most of the properties of churches and cathedrals and monasteries are under the Moscow Patriarchate. In fact, the place where St. Andrew is supposed to have stood and made his declaration is the place with the largest and oldest monastery in Ukraine, the most revered site 
is still under Moscow Patriarchate control. Is there any record of people moving to the independent church? Again, the numbers are sort of squishy, but the leaders of the new United Church, so-called, claim three to 400 parishes have gone over. The Moscow Patriarchate said about 60 in the churches who, by majority vote, move from Moscow Patriarchate to the new church. There's conflict because suddenly, what are you going to do with the property? The majority wants to take over that church. The minority locks the doors and says, no, wait a minute, this is still our church. Our priest is still our priest. So the members of the new church come with chain cutters and under the permission of the local militia, the police, start cutting the chains and barging in and taking over the church. They're literally fighting over Oh, they are. They are. How widespread is this? Well, uh, if in fact you have two or three hundred churches going over, of course the Moscow Patriarchate is making public relations hay of this and saying, look at the violence that it's creating. Look what the Tomas done. It's dividing Ukrainian brothers and sisters throughout the country. Now, I can't give you numbers of how many conflicts has actually happened, but it's enough that it makes the news, both locally and nationally. Why is this so pivotal to Moscow, and what historical legitimacy are they claiming over these lands? Well, a legend has it that St. Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, made his way up the Dnipro River, landed in what's now Kiev, and overlooked the river and said, from this place... Christianity would spread throughout the Slavic lands. So so Kiev occupies this place in the Slavic East Slavic mind as the fountainhead of the spread of Christianity northwards and eastwards. This would have been in the year 60 or 70 of of the Christian so-called Christian or common era. The slow spread of Christianity until in 988 the chief leader of the Slavs, Volodymyr, becomes converted largely through the witness of his mother. Same name as Putin, whose mother is also extremely pious. Uh, this is what is said. And he's built a statue, a huge statue to Volodymyr the Great in Moscow. And, and even much later, you have this claim attributed to Lenin saying, Russia without Ukraine is like a man without its head. Even the Soviets took on this idea that there's a intellectual capital. Yes, ideological, spiritual, historical capital. And there's even contested the name of Rus. So it's Kiev Rus that it's the original name of that nation state. It's later appropriated by Peter the Great in the late 1600s. As a Russian as Russia, Russia. So Ukrainians make this linguistic distinction between Roshisky, which is Russian, and Ruski, which is Kiev Rus, this original political state. So aside from its linguistic and political leadership, when does the religious gravity shift from Kiev to Moscow? Probably around 1300, when, when the Mongols' occupation of Kiev and that part of Eastern Europe begins to be pushed back by the new center of power, Muscovy. So you have 
until Peter the Great, what we call Russia being called Muscovy. He comes to power, takes over Belarus and Ukraine from the local leaders, and calls this Russia, Russia. But it's Great Russia, it's Belarus, and what he calls Little Russia, which is now roughly Ukraine. And how does the church play into this? Does he declare that there's a new leader in Moscow who has precedence over all of the believers? That's when it begins to happen. Okay, so it's the establishment of the Moscow Patriarchate. And it actually happens a century or two earlier, but it's moving in the direction of consolidation in Moscow. You get movement toward the concept of symphonia, where religion and politics have their own spheres, and yet ideally they should work together, but maintain their independence as well. So each nourishes the other uh, with the political sphere, guaranteeing basic legal rights, but also protecting the church from exterior forces and from internal division, and the church making sure that the government um, fulfills its obligations for justice and upholds the church's efforts to sanctify the empire, sanctify the people, make them holy, make them moral. In all of these countries that have orthodox national churches, this pattern of symphonia where the church is in charge of the moral heart of the people and their spiritual development and in some sense their spiritual security, I guess, and the uh, state is in charge of their physical security, making sure that they can eat and making sure that the church stays safe so that it can minister to its people. Right, and it's on a continuum in some places because, for example, in Greece, orthodoxy is the national church. But in other European countries, it's not the official national church, but it is, for all intents and purposes, the church of the people. Is there a certain status that needs to be achieved by an individual to be recognized as a legitimate partner in the symphonia by a government? Like, do they have to achieve this patriarch status, which is over more than a city, it seems like? It's like regional? It depends on the nature of the government. So if it is more dictatorial than the church leader in that region will expect to have a similar status. How does it emerge in Moscow then as they're establishing this hegemony? I imagine that it's a pretty tight relationship between a single church leader, a patriarch in Moscow and the czar. That's right. If you have more of a democratic system as you do have in Ukraine with diversity both politically and religiously, you have that title and status, but it doesn't hold that kind of Mm top-down authority. In fact, Epiphanius says, I'm governing by the consent of the bishops. I think that that concept is on its way out in Ukraine in a way that it won't be for a while, if ever, in Russia. The concept of symphonia. The concept of symphonia. I think Ukraine is has too big of a secular and Western element to both its politics and its religion that tempers that idea. I don't know that it's going to flower, to flourish, because in the inauguration speech of Volodymyr Zelensky, there was not a single mention of religion of any kind, including the Tomas. And Zelensky uh, is obviously trying to make peace then with Moscow. And 
it's going to be interesting how that goes since he's a Russian speaker, as I understand, uh, but he's also a Jew, but he's a secular Jew. And so in some ways, and a comedian who played the president on TV. And so there's something of a rejection of the whole idea of religio politics in the support for a candidate like that who who's mocking the uh, the man who embodies that in Ukraine. So interestingly, he's met with all religious leaders except with the Protestants who were rather late in greeting him and wishing him well and expressing prayer and support. But he met with all three Orthodox leaders. This includes the head of the Moscow Patriarchate of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Epiphanius, the head of the so-called New United Church, and with Philaret, with the Jewish Council, with Muslims, with the Greek Catholics. And by his own example and by the way that he's conducted himself, uh, says that this is not the type of thing that needs to be a holy sacrament. This is just politics. Well, but he did take a moral stand because he said, I don't want to have my portrait in government offices. I'm not an icon. Rather, he said, hang pictures of your families in your offices, and before you make a decision, look into the eyes of your children. It was brilliant. But in some ways, his secularism is a reflection of the growing influence of Western Europe in Ukraine. And I wonder if you've heard anything about pushback against him, if you've heard anything about pushback against him as a uh, threat to some kind of, you know, natural unity of Christianity and Slavic culture or government? I don't think so. I have read the responses of the clergy towards him, and it's been encouraging in the sense that they have written to him or they've made public statements saying things like this. Um, we support all of your ideals to the extent that you obey the law of the Constitution, to the extent that you give us not special rights, but equal rights, uh, we will pray for you, we will support you, and we wish you success, that all that you said would actually emerge in concrete policies Sounds pretty positive actions. from all sides. So perhaps in some ways he can be a unity candidate now uh, by not belonging to any side. This. Although he did, on the language issue, he delivered most of his speech in Ukrainian. When he talked about his policy towards the East, it was a mix of Ukrainian and Russian, which prompted the far-right candidate of parliament, Lyashko, to mock him, to heckle him, to which Zelensky replied, there you go again, dividing the Ukrainian people. And so how has Moscow responded to Zelensky's election? Putin says, I'm not going to congratulate him now. I'll wait to see if I can congratulate him on his policies towards eastern Ukraine. Has the head of the Moscow Patriarchate uh, said anything about where he stands on not just the election, but the status of the Tomos at present? Onufri, who is the head of the Moscow Patriarchate, has been very judicious in his responses in this regard. He wants peace, he wants unity among all Orthodox, among all regions of Ukraine. He's pushing for a, a real enforcement of the Minsk agreements or some better alternative. 
it seems that the potential for a religio-political spark to set off a greater war, at least in Ukraine, has been averted for now. I think we're in a good place. It seems like Poroshenko's project has failed since he's out of office. Well, I think we have to remember he's out of office, but he's not gone. He's still head of a huge parliamentary party, as well as Yulia Tymoshenko, who only got like 13% of the vote. The woman with the amazing braids. She's still around. So there's still some potential for Poroshenko to use his status as the man who won independence for an Orthodox church political capital going forward. At least he's hoping so. That's right. It remains to be seen what kind of union his parliamentary bloc and the new church leadership are able to craft. Dr. Lemcho, thank you again for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you want more on what we discussed today, visit us at jsis.washington.edu. You can find me, Randy Thompson, on Twitter, and you can find this show on your favorite podcast app. Thank you again for listening, and I'll leave you with a one-question quiz. Which influenced the mother more in Ukraine? Religion or politics? Hope you'll be back for our next episode on Turkish Islam, President Erdogan, and his rivalry with the exiled cleric Fethullah Gulen. <laughs>